All right, so Genesis chapter 38. It's quite a chapter. Anybody read ahead? Some of you maybe have never read through Genesis. And uh, I warned you last week, and you're going to see that the Bible does not hide the failures of the people whom God uses. The Bible shows us in all of their strength and in all of their weakness. You know, some people will read through this chapter 38, and some people will look and say, see, what nothing to do with the Bible when people like this are the ones that God was working. But what they fail to see is that, that God exposes the sin and the shame and, and even judges the sin that is there, but also is willing to show grace and mercy to those that are in that place of being willing to be restored. So it in no way endorses sinful actions. We see God first in line to stand and condemn what took place, and yet is also there to show grace to those that are in need. So in chapter 38, we're calling this Judah's failure um, and God's grace. Judah's failure and God's grace. So in this chapter, it seems like an abrupt departure from the Joseph story that we began last week, and we will resume uh, in our study next week in chapter 39. Last week, he was sold into slavery. We'll see him down in Egypt in chapter 39. But chapter 38 is all about his older brother by the name of Judah. Yes, that tribe by which Jesus will come through. This is his lineage. And that is why we even have this chapter, I would think. This chapter is here because we're following the redemption, the promised seed that would turn and reverse what Satan had done in the garden. And so we come to chapter 38, and here we see where that one will come from, and it is from Judah. Um, it shows us a contrast between Joseph and Judah. Remember, Judah is the one that said, hey, let's get some money off of this young guy. Let's sell him. And then they sold him to the Midianites that were traveling down into Egypt. So Judah had a really big role in the selling of Joseph. It was his idea into slavery. We're going to see that there's a continued deception and the consequences of that deception within the house of Jacob. And it shows us the necessity of Israel and his descendants making their way down in Egypt that they, may, they might maintain their identity as a covenant people. Because what we see in chapter 38 is how the, the Canaanites, the people around them, those that were worshiping other gods were beginning to affect them. And so it serves as a bridge to say, this is what Judah was like, this is what Joseph was like, but this is why um, they were taken down into Egypt eventually. And we'll see that as we move through the story of Joseph in the coming weeks. Um, one other thing that to just kind of put us a, a little bit of chronology here. Um, Joseph was sold into slavery, chapter 37, when he was 17 years old. This is the same year that we're going to see in chapter 38 where Judah relocates and moves um, among the Canaanites. In chapter, uh, at age 18 of Joseph, the firstborn son of Judah, Ur, 
is, uh, is born. At 19, Onan is born. And at 20, we're talking about the age of Joseph. At 20 years old for Joseph, uh, the youngest son, Sheila, is born. At age 36, Ur marries Tamar and dies. So we see a lot of years are, are going to go through um, before they actually meet up with their brother again. And it's this, it's the six years of plenty before the famine in Joseph's dream. So the sixth year of plenty before the famine. And then at 37, Onan uh, marries Tamar and dies. At 38, uh, Judah impregnates Tamar. And then in the second year of the famine of the world, Joseph is 39. And that's when his brothers, including Joseph, have to go down. So... As we go through chapter 8, we're reading a lot of different events that cover a significant period of time and um, almost bring us to the moment where they actually meet. Now, when we go back to chapter 39, we're going to rewind the story of Joseph and we're going to follow the, the actual events of his life. But hopefully that, that helps to just kind of frame up in your mind what's going on as we read chapter 38 with the rest of the book of Genesis. So let's begin reading there at verses 1 through 5, where we see Judah's heart drifting from the Lord. It came to pass at that time that Judah departed from his brothers. That might be a line to underline. Departed from his brothers. And visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. And Judah was there, and Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. And he married her and went into her. So she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. She conceived yet again and bore a son and called his name Shelah. He was at Chezeb when she bore him. So it just kind of reads like normal information. Just here, this is the family line. But what is significant is that line that I draw, drew your attention to, is that he departed from his brothers, and not only that, but he's also now taking a wife from among the Canaanites. Do you remember how Isaac and Rebekah responded to Esau when he was taking wives from among the Canaanites? How this grieved them, and how this turned his heart away from the things of the Lord? <clears throat> This will be seen throughout Israel's history. Uh, maybe nobody stands out as a bad example of this more than King Solomon, who had hundreds of uh, wives and concubines, and we read, and they turned his heart away from worshiping God to worshiping the gods that they served. And so this is a drift. He's departing from the company of his brothers. And it goes and gets a wife. God has made it so clear. I mean, I, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they all make certain to not take wives from among the Canaanites. And this is because of their sinful practices. It's because of the fact that they worshiped other gods and they did not worship uh, the Lord. And so the influence was strong. The influence was powerful. And he fails to make that same careful decision. The crisis in the birth of Judah's children um, is going to be seen, right? Judah's going to have children, but now they're coming from a Canaanite. And we're going to see that his compromise is there. What does that mean? Um, and we're going to follow it, and we will see. You know, the decision of Lot 
to, um, to go among uh, the plain of Sodom and Gomorrah and to be there and to be a judge at the gate and living within the city. That story would have been, I mean, no doubt Judah would have known it. Known it. He would have been familiar with it. And yet it serves as zero warning to him of the potential of having your heart compromised in devotion to God. Judah, we, we know, right? We know that Joseph is reporting to his father, hey, your sons, my brothers, they're messed up. And you're going to see it. You will see it here, that they are uh, going to prostitutes. They're worshiping. Uh, they're marrying those that are worshiping other gods. And this ends up being problematic. And the lesson for us to glean here is twofold. Number one, stay close to the family of God. Don't depart from the brothers. Don't depart from that place of fellowship and communion. This, this kind of uh, close proximity, um, although they're all kind of drifting in one way or another, it proves to be most detrimental to Judah. Hebrews 10, verses 23 through 25. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. So we have a confession that we believe in Jesus Christ and we are to be steadfast. We shouldn't waver in it. Here's, he goes on to speak about how we can make certain that we are steadfast and we don't waver. He says, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. So we ought to be looking out for each other. We ought to be looking as we come to church. We ought to be thinking in our prayer times about one another and how we can minister and how we can strengthen each other. How can I provoke you? How can you provoke me? How can we provoke her to love and good works? This is the kind of mentality that we should be having. And this helps us. If I'm actively looking to help you in your walk with the Lord, it's probably a pretty good indication of where I am with the Lord. Now, not always, but it is helpful to do that. If I'm conscious about provoking you to love and good works in your walk with Jesus Christ, it makes me think about my own walk with Jesus Christ. So this is important. So that's, that's one way we can uh, remain steadfast and not waver is to consider each other. And verse 25, we get a second way. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. The Bible teaches this, is that fellowship is important. And as we see the day of the Lord approaching, we should be in more fellowship, not less fellowship. And I'm not going to tell you how many times a week to go into fellowship, other than to say it is so much the more, not what? so much the less. Allow the Spirit of God to speak to your heart and show you the place of drawing near in fellowship to your brothers, to your sisters, that you might be provoked in your love for the Lord. You know, I, this, these last 18 months have been an interesting uh, time that probably um, none of us would ever have uh, seen in the history of, of the church while we've been alive is that it would have become something that was um, at an all-time low. Probably the last time you can find that in our country was during the Spanish flu epidemic, where it would be something similar. But it's not the only time that the church has ever had to walk through seasons of pandemic. I mean, there, there's all kinds of examples. Maybe you want to 
uh, go and find some reliable resources and do some studying about um, church history and pandemics. There's some really amazing um, uh, stories of how the church responded and how the church worked. As a matter of fact, if you go back to the 3rd and 4th century, um, in two different pandemics, uh, the church, well, actually, historians look back at that time, and they attribute the way the church responded to the pandemic in the 3rd and 4th century as to why the church spread throughout the Roman Empire with the speed that it did because they were seen as being loving people. When people were being turned out onto the streets that were infected with the pandemic, I don't know what it was. It wasn't COVID-19, okay? But it, whatever they had, whatever that disease was that was taking people's life, and they knew that if they were, were around them, they were going to get sick. So people were turning those that were infected out on the streets to die so the rest of the household did not get sick. And who took care of those people out on the streets? It was the church. And as a matter of fact, you would think to read, and the Lord protected them all, and not a single one of them ever got the disease, and they lived long and healthy lives. But that's not what happened. They actually died, just like the ones they were caring for. And one of the bishops, I forget his name, I have it written down, saw this taking place, and they began to name those that committed themselves to caring for those that had these sicknesses and ailments, nurturing them and caring for them as they died, knowing that they would as well. It was so common that the believers were dying <clears throat> that the bishop called those that went down the streets to minister to them, he called them martyrs. They were known as martyrs. That, I mean, that's how sick they became. It was just a, a given that if you're going to go and you're going to minister like this, then you're going to do this. You know, we have seen, um, you know, we've, we've, we've had a retreat. And I'm not going to stand here and say that it was all wrong and it was, shouldn't have happened and we shouldn't have done it this way, we should have done it that way, because lives are a little more complicated and I don't know your health profile and I don't know what your doctor is saying to you, but I do know this that we are not to forsake the gathering together of believers. That should not become the pattern of our lives. And so we've con gone through this season. And my, my question is, what if this happens again? What if this happens again? And what if it becomes a yearly activity? What are you going to do? What am I going to do? How are we going to handle this? What's going to become the priorities of our thinking and of our life? I want to put that out there for you to think about and you to consider. Well, what we're going to do is we're just going to stay away. Okay, I, I get that. But I, I want to put this out to you. And what if Jesus comes back at the end of two years when the church has primarily been shut down and he comes back and we've had the last two years to reach out to the world and we have been withdrawn from doing that? That, I, I can tell you, and I speak for myself, and I'm not going to impose it upon anybody else, that is not an option for me. It's not an option. I know it's not an option. And honestly, I've, been, I've worked through this issue of my health and ministry and you know, the gathering together with uh, the body of believers for many years. And um, I remember, you know, I getting, some of you will remember this as well. I mean, I get sick all the time. Does anybody remember me getting sick all the time? Every time I traveled, I got sick and I'd come home and I would, it would be weeks before I'd feel better. And 
a flu season would come around, and I just, I remember the doctor said, well, you know, you could, there's a good way for you to avoid I'm getting sick every year, and I go, what's that? He goes, stop being a pastor. He goes, you're around people all the time, and, and, and of course, he was a believer, and he didn't mean that. He just was like, you're going to be sick, and making these decisions to travel to Nepal, into India, into these places, and, and that this is happening. So, listen, make certain that you keep the kingdom of God, your first priority. You can sort out between you and the Lord and your family exactly how you're going to chart the course. And we all took different ways. But I am certain that none of us want to stand before Jesus Christ and say, I stopped using my gifts because I was afraid. We're not going to want to say that. I mean, you can argue whatever you want. But I, but I just would ask you to think about seeing the Lord and that we have been told to give our lives away for the kingdom. It's not just about coming to a social gathering. It's about doing what the Lord has called us to do. And I will tell you, I am concerned about those that maybe will never return into fellowship. I'm concerned, and you should be concerned about them as well. Because that is not God's plan. I can't speak for what it has been over the last months for you and your family. Again, I am not judging that, but I know that as, a, in a, as the normal practice of your life, this is the word of the Lord. That's the word of the Lord. What you do in, in terms of months here and there and how you negotiate that, you stand before the Lord and I will stand before the Lord. And listen, I know people have not been happy with me, with me and the leadership and how we walked through this on both sides I had people that were upset that we were meeting, and I had people that were upset that we weren't meeting faster and closer. And so, uh, you know, okay, that's, we, we have our, our opinions. But this is what it came down t- to me for. I had to make a decision of whether or not we were going to turn people away that wanted to come and worship and be instructed the Word of God in fellowship, or I was going to have to make the decision that, well, I'm sorry, government, I've got another mandate to follow and this is what it came to. I would rather stand before the Lord in meeting than to stand before the Lord in not meeting. I don't know. Listen, I, I'm, not, I'm not certain how the Lord will ultimately look at this. I, I, I made my decisions based upon this. But, you know, I may stand before the Lord and he says, Troy, I mean, it was only for a little bit of time. Why did you push the limits? Why did you do that? And I will have to answer to the Lord for that. I understand that. I understand that there were things that the government said to do, and we did our best to follow them. And at some point, as we grew so much, as either turn people away or welcome people in. And I realized I may have to stand before the Lord and give an account that that was not the best thing to do. But I don't know that to be the case. So I defaulted to what I know clearly, and that is do not forsake the gathering together. Just so you can understand what was going on in my heart and my mind. It was not, these were difficult decisions that we made. But it's because of this principle of being together, that's what led us and guided us through the, the past uh, year and a half. And so that aside, you need to make certain, you can, listen, you can come to the building and still not be connected with people, right? So you can come in and maybe you, you, know, you feel good about yourself that you came in, but you are maybe less connected to people that were, did not come 
because they were making certain of, of getting fellowship in other ways rather than a, a larger gathering. So the, the point is this, is that we must have fellowship and it is a dangerous thing that will lead to wavering when we forsake the gathering together of believers. And we should do that and make sure we don't do that, but that we're actually meeting with one another so much the more as we see the day approaching, not so much the less. So twofold, stay close to the family of God and secondly, be warned of the corrupting influence of keeping company with godly people, ungodly people. I mean, and Judah's going to fall here. Look at verses 6 through 11, and we come to the, I've called it the messianic crisis, because although it's not been stated yet, we know that Judah is the, 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 the son through whom the Messiah will come. So therefore, the children he has become really significant, because through one of those children, the Messiah eventually will come. And so as we read here, verse 6, then Judah took a wife of Ur, for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Jew's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord killed him. And Judah said to Onan, Go unto your brother's wife and marry her and raise up an heir to your brother. But Onan knew that the heir would not be his. That's important right there. He knew it wouldn't be his. And it came to pass when he went into his brother's wife that he emitted on the ground lest he should give an heir to his brother. That's why he did this. And the thing which he did displeased the Lord. Therefore, he killed him also. Two down. Got a crisis going on here. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain in widow in your father's house till my son Shelah is grown. For he said, lest he also die like his brothers. And Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. He has no intention of giving his third son to this woman. It's like, wow, she's bad luck. Everybody that marries her, ends up dying. And yet, it's the Lord. It's not Tamar. It's the Lord who is intervening and dealing with this. Um, the law of the day, and later, the law of Moses, required that a brother or a near relative of a childless man take the, his, the deceased um, uh, wife and raise up a child, just as Judah explained. And so Onan, being the second oldest, it was his responsibility to take uh, Tamar. It was very common in, um, in the day. It was the very common laws. You can read. They found these in discoveries of, you know, digs and such. And it's like, this is what they did. But this actually becomes something that happens within the law of Moses. And that is called a kinsman redeemer. So you have somebody that's a near relative that's going to come in and they're going to redeem the name, if you will. Because um, lest his name, you know, go and nobody um, remember him and he's forgotten and the inheritance is lost. And so this is very important to the Lord. One thing that's interesting here, though, is that think of Jesus for a second. He is a son of Judah. So we have one son that's wicked. We have another son that's told to raise up a child for your brother. And really, in many ways, this is for Tamar to be protected. And he's unwilling to do that. Why is he unwilling to have a child with her? He's unwilling because he's already had one brother that is gone. He's now the oldest brother. 
And the inheritance that would go to him is going to be much more significant. And now if he has to take that inheritance and he has to give it to the child that is born to Tamar, then that's not going to stay you know, in his family, so to speak. It's going to go to his brother. And so it's because of greed that he does not want to do that. He does not want the inheritance to be diminished. He does not want to share it. He does not want to be that redeemer for Tamar. And yet, what a contrast that is with Jesus. Because Jesus is our kinsman redeemer. In what way? Um, in this way. Is that we were lost. And we had forfeited life. And we were in the slave market of sin. And it was capable that a kinsman redeemer who saw a relative who had sold themselves into slave, slavery, he could go and he could buy that man or that woman out of slavery for a particular price. And so the Lord sees us from heaven. He sees us as those that are sold into slavery. But he's not near of kin. He's a second person of the Godhead. But what does he do? He comes and he is born of the Virgin Mary and becomes near of kin to the human race because he is both fully God and fully man. Now he has the right and the opportunity to be a redeemer. Because you see, a Judah couldn't just go to anybody and say, hey, take Tamar because you needed to be, a, you needed to be related. And so when Jesus came and he took on human flesh, he became related to the human race. And now he could go and he could redeem us. And he paid the price to redeem us out of slavery. He hung and he died on the cross and he rose again the third day. Not only that, in Romans chapter 8, verses 16 through 17, we read, it says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and look at this, joint heirs with Christ. Onan was not willing to share the inheritance and redeem. But Jesus is not only willing to redeem, but he's willing to what? Share the inheritance. We become joint heirs with Jesus in this redemption that he has provided for us. Onan did not want to take this Gentile uh, bride, Tamar, and yet Jesus was willing to take a Gentile bride, as well as the Jewish bride, and bring them together into one new body called the church. And so we are the bride of Christ. So what a contrast. You, you know, we see the first time this whole principle really comes uh, to the forefront of a kinsman redeemer is in, in the family of Judah. And yet the most significant redemption that will ever take place comes through a descendant of Judah. Because Jesus is, is he's not wanting to hold back. He's wanting to pour out his grace. He's wanting us to have the fullness of salvation. Well, let's keep on reading. The plot gets really, if you're not freaked out yet, get ready. Verses 12 through 16, we see Judah's hypocrisy. Remember, he sent Tamar away because he's like, uh, he, she's not getting my third son. Now, in the process of time, the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, died, and Judah was comforted and went up to his sheep shearers at Timnah, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And it was told Tamar, saying, Look, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear sheep. 
So she took off her widow's garments, covered herself with a veil, and wrapped herself and sat down in an open place, which was on the way to Timnah, for she saw that Shelah, the third son, was grown, and she was not given to him as a wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot, because she had covered her face. Then he turned to her by the way and said, Please let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. So she said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? And he said, I will send a young goat from the flock. So she said, Will you give me a pledge till you send it? Then he said, What pledge shall I give you? She said, I want your wallet, your license, and your social security number. <laughs> that, that's what she asks for. Okay? I mean, to put it in our terms. Um, he said, well, what pledge shall I give you? So she said, your signet, okay, I want your license, I want the cord, I want your wallet, and I want your social security, I want your staff that is in your hand. Then he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. So she arose and went away and laid aside her veil and put on the garments of her widowhood. Verse 20, and Judah sent the young goat by the hand of his friend the Adulamite, to receive his pledge from the woman's hand, but he did not find her. Then he asked the men of that place, saying, Where is the harlot who was openly by the roadside? And they said, There was no harlot in this place. So he returned to Judah and said, I cannot find her. Also the men of the place say, I said there was no harlot in this place. Then Judah said, Let her take them for herself, so she can have my wallet, social security, and license. Lest we be shamed. Oh, Judah, you're going to be shamed. <laughs> For I sent this young goat and have not found her. And it came to pass about three months after that Judah was told, saying, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has played the harlot. Furthermore, she is with child by harlotry. Now, yes and no, right? When she was brought out, she was sent to her father-in-law, saying, by the man... Oh, actually, actually um, the end of verse 24. So Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. There's your hypocrisy. Wow. You have sinned in this way. She's pregnant by you. You don't know that, but you've committed the same sin, and yet look what you're willing to do to her. Isn't it interesting how other people's sin, always, or our sin, always looks much worse on other people? It doesn't look so bad when we're doing it. Somehow we rationalize it. You know, well, my wife had just died and this and that. Who knows what he was saying? But now that his, his daughter-in-law has supposedly played the harlot, he's ready to kill her and have her burned. Verse 25, when she was brought out, she sent to her father-in-law saying, By the man to whom these belong, I am with child. And she said, Please determine who these are. Right? The driver's license, the wallet, and the social security card. Whose are these? So Judah acknowledged them and said, she has been more righteous than I. Well, that's not very hard. And she's only a little bit more righteous than you, okay? But yes, because I did not give her to Sheila, my son, and he never knew her again. So he recognized his sin. He knew what he was supposed to do with Sheila and didn't do it. And so she went ahead. Now, as we, we read, read a couple of times that she covered herself with a veil, and when he saw that she had covered her, uh, her, her face, he knew that she was a harlot. 
I found this interesting. I never quite, quite made this connection before. But here, here's the connection. Because we would tend to think, oh, a veil, a show of modesty. Why does he think loose? <laughs> Why does he think a prostitute when he sees her covered? Because in this day, um, a woman wouldn't wear a veil except on her what? Wedding night. And the face would not be seen. And so we've already seen a little picture of this with Jacob and Leah, whose was, her face was covered. But Rachel and Leah weren't covered all the time. It just was something that was associated with the wedding night and the intimacy that took place in the wedding night. So for somebody to be out in public wearing a veil was to say, do you want to be intimate like on a honeymoon night? So that's what's going on, and that's how come he um, culturally is able to identify, although she says nothing, and he you know, was the one that would seemingly initiate, the wearing of the veil did something, uh, said something in that culture at that time that we don't really understand, but it is certainly understood to them. What a, a repeat of, of events. And there's a contrast. Um, the deception. Judah deceives Tamar with regards to Shelah, and, Sh- and Tamar deceives Judah with regard to her what? Clothing. She uses her clothing to deceive. Has that ever happened in the family before? Yeah. Jacob dressed up, and in the skins of uh, a kid, again, we got a goat that's present here in the whole deal as well, right? So we just see these same elements popping up again in the story. But there's another instance of deception in clothing. After they had sold Judah, excuse me, Joseph, they had beat him and beat him up. They had taken his coat of many colors. And what did they do? They took, um, they killed an animal and they put blood on it. And they took it to their father and said, is this your sons? Now, The same scene plays out. She says, oh, are these yours? Are these yours? Yes, they are. And she had deceived him with her clothing. And it's just interesting to see how these same themes are continuing to play out. But this, this passage also serves as such a contrast between Joseph and Judah. Um, Some of the parallels, um, again, please identify this ring. She says, uh, whereas to Jacob, please identify whose tunic this is. Um, we see Judah running to a harlot, and we see Joseph running from a woman that's acting like a harlot. And you just see the contrast between these two people. And um, in all the different episodes that we've talked about, you see goats, you see items of dress, and you see deception. So while we read this story, you think, where did it come from? The themes have been woven into the book of Genesis for quite some time now. What a contrast. He is acting as a, a sinner and as a hypocrite, whereas Joseph, the one who's been sold, is the one that is acting honorably. And really, now we can see what Joseph was talking about when he spoke with his father. Hey, these guys are not good. They weren't good men. Judah was not a good man. But we begin to see a little bit of repentance here. I mean, he's caught. 
So you wonder, is he really repentant? But as the story continues to unfold in the coming weeks, we'll see that Judah becomes softer and softer, and, um, and we just see the, the Lord being willing to turn his heart around. Let's wrap it up here, verses 27 through 30. And here we see grace in the genealogy. Now it came to pass at that time, at the time for giving birth, that behold, twins were in her womb. Now we've already seen twins once before, right? Jacob and Esau. And so it was when she was giving birth that the one put out his hand, and the midwife took a scarlet thread and bound it on his hand, saying, This one came out first. Then it happened as she drew, as he drew back his hand, that his brother came out unexpectedly. So it's kind of like, firstborn, I don't think so, it's going to be me. So we, again, the same tension among the firstborn is going on, just like with Jacob and Esau, um, just like, you know, with uh, Onan, um, you know, want, not wanting to give a, a child. Um, he wanted the inheritance. It, it, I mean, just like Judah, does this guy think he's going to rule over me? It's a continued theme in the scripture. Then it happened as he drew back his hand that his brother came out unexpectedly. And she said, how did you break through? This breach be upon you. And that became his name, Perez. After his brother came out, who had the scarlet thread on his hand, his name was called Zira. It just, again, I don't know what you do with it, but the birthright was lost by red, hairy Esau when eating a bowl of red lentils. And now you have um, Zira that has a red scarlet who has lost the birthright because um, the other uh, brother, he came out, Perez, um, he came out, you know, instead. So, you, again, you see these similar themes. And so there we have kind of a, the, how we got from Jacob to Judah, who's going to be the one that's in the lineage of the Messiah, and is going to redeem mankind, and how we end up coming um, to Zira. Um, I mean, Perez, I'm sorry. And so, um, so this, is, this is kind of how it, it takes place. But as we wrap it up, I've called this section the great grace in the genealogy. First of all, this is the family that Jesus is descending from. This is the family that he's coming through. They've got problems, they've got issues, kind of like us. We've got problems and we've got issues. But in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 6, and the genealogy, we read this. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Judah and his brothers, and Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez begot Hezron, and Hezron begot Ram. And so we follow uh, Perez, right? That's, that becomes the one who's in the, the lineage of Jesus. Ram begot Aminadab, Aminadab begot uh, Nahashon, and Nahashon begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Another woman's in the genealogy. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. There's another woman in the genealogy. Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David the king, David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. And what's her name? Bathsheba. There are four ladies that are mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus. Number one, Tamar, who used harlotry to trap Judah. 
That's the first one that's in the, that mentioned in the genealogy. Secondly, Rahab was a harlot from Jericho. The third one, Ruth was a redeemed, kinsman-redeemed Gentile bride. Boaz was the kinsman-redeemer in that whole story. And fourth, Bathsheba, who had committed adultery with David. All four of these ladies make it into the genealogy. What do we make of that? What we make of that is here's the trophy of God's grace. This is his, this is his trophy case, if you will. Here are the people that God used to bring the Redeemer into the world. And these four ladies are noted. Of course, you have one more in Mary. So you have five altogether. Mary, the mother of the Lord. All of these ladies would not have been human choice in writing a, gene- a genealogy. If you could control it, you wouldn't have wanted to have these ladies. All of them had something around them. Maybe not so much Ruth, but she was a Gentile bride. So if you're thinking this from a Jewish point of view, why these four ladies? And it speaks to us of how God works and moves. It also speaks to us of the uniqueness of Scripture because quite often what would normally be found is that these names would be written off and you would never hear of them, but the Lord is not ashamed of them and the Lord brings them in. And you know, I want you to know this, the Lord is not ashamed of you. And maybe you've got a past. Maybe you have a history. Maybe you've got a story. As a matter of fact, I know you do. We all do. We all have a history. We all have a past. We all have a story. And what the enemy loves for us to think is that God has no time for us and that God is embarrassed of us and about us and he doesn't ever want to mention our name because of what has taken place in the past. If that is the case, why would Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba all be named in his genealogy? I mean, this is the genealogy. They don't mean much to us, but it was everything. It was everything to the Jews who wanted to make certain that Jesus was really descending from the right lineage, and yet their names are found there. It could have been written in a way that the mother's names were not noted, just like in the others. We don't have mention of of the wives, of the moms, but these four make it in because the Lord's, it's his way of saying, I'm not ashamed of these that are a part of that redemption story And you are part of that redemption story. So walk in the grace. Walk in the forgiveness of the Lord. Now, if you're in present rebellion and disobedience, you should feel some shame. But you can repent today. And you can leave all that behind. And you can press on and begin to walk with the Lord afresh. You know, one other thing that I see here, we know the story behind Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. The Lord made certain that all the story was put in there. And these ladies stand out in the genealogy. It's like the Lord is saying, consider how I work. Consider my grace and redeeming mankind when you think about Tamar. Or when you think about uh, Ruth. Or you think about Rahab. Or you think about Bathsheba. I think there's a place, a proper place, for a testimony of how we've been redeemed and where we've come from. We don't, we don't have to have their background, do we? They could have just said Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. We could have all stood by, scratched our head, and say, well, we know these were the wives, but we know nothing else about them. But the Lord saw fit to make certain we had their whole story included. And so don't walk in shame of how God redeemed you. You are a trophy of his grace. 
Don't celebrate your past sin, okay? Sometimes testimonies sound more like bragamonies, right? They're just like, and I was in this sin, and I was doing that, and I had it all. You had nothing. You were eating the pods, and, you know, that were thrown to the swine. We, we all were lost in sin, but sometimes testimonies sound more like bragamonies. But you can talk about the depths that God saved you out of it. And part of you may say, I don't want anybody to ever know that. Okay, there's a place to share and there's a place to maybe not share, but the Lord highlights these four ladies. And, and this is the reason why, so that we can all know in a moment like this, you're sitting here maybe today feeling like you're on, the, you're on the outs and there's no place for you and that God doesn't want you anymore. You can be in the family, but get in the back. You know, Don't let anybody see you. The Lord's like, no, I want to shine the spotlight on these four. So in a moment like this, from these four ladies, you can know that God is not ashamed of whom he's redeemed. So you don't have to walk around with your head hung low because you've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. You've been washed clean. You're part of the redemption story and he is not ashamed of you. Now if you can be comforted by Tamar, Ruth, Rahab, and Bathsheba, do you think that it's just possible that somebody else sitting in this room that if they were to hear your redemption story might find like they have a place as well? And the answer is yes. And so there may be, I'm sure there is, shameful things in your past. I would just want you to stop and ponder, am I allowing my life to be a trophy of God's grace so that people can see what he's done in me so that others can stand by and know that there is hope for them? Do you, do you, does that make sense? And I understand we want to keep that, we want to keep it personal, we want to keep it quiet, but people need to know your story. People need to know how God's worked in your life so they can have the confidence that he's going to work in their life as well. Stay in fellowship with the redeemed. Rejoice that you have a kinsman redeemer that's not afraid to share his inheritance. Be a Joseph, not a Judah, when temptation comes, and be a trophy of God's grace. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of it, the way that it speaks to us. Lord, we are comforted to know that you want us. You're not ashamed of us, that you're willing to redeem us. And Lord, it's not a surprise that men, women, would become selfish and greedy and unwilling to pay the price and to give up what is theirs to help somebody else up. We know of that own selfish spirit that we've got to deal with and surrender to you. But Lord, you're not that way. You are full of grace and truth. You redeemed us. You came born of a woman that you might redeem us by your own body and blood that we might be those that would be joint heirs with you. Lord, we worship you. We thank you.